Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now going to take up Matthew chapter 6, first half of the chapter, as we continue our series of audios on the book of Matthew. Matthew 6 1 says this. Jesus is speaking to the people. He says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, this righteousness that we're going to talk about can be broken down into three acts of righteousness that Jesus is going to talk about in this chapter. First of all, giving. Second of all, praying. And third, fasting. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving, praying, or fasting, but how you do it is important, and that's what Jesus is going to focus on here. Now, let's go, and the way you're supposed to do it is not hypocritically not ostentatiously so everybody can see you. So that's the basic problem that Jesus is, de- is dealing with in this chapter. Verse 2, So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. Now, the interesting thing here is Jesus sounds like he's referring to a practice, but it doesn't appear that any such practice was actually literally performed, according to John Gill. Somehow, Gill says the Pharisees didn't notify people that they were about to uh, go about the task of giving alms so that everybody could see them, but we don't know what it uh, actually is. That's John Gill's view. Adam Clark says it was likely that it was literally practiced, although no such practice is referred to in Jewish writings. And maybe something's turned up since these 19th century commentators commentated. So, but at any rate, whatever it was... Some people even say it was referring to the public alms chest that had a trumpet, a kind of a, 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 a receptacle that was narrow at the top and wide at the bottom, and it looked like a trumpet. So when you dropped a coin in the trumpet, it looked like it sounded like a trumpet. It was it, it didn't sound like a trumpet. It was it was referred to as sounding the trumpet because you made the coin ring in the trumpet alms box. I don't know, whatever it is, but the point is, is don't go around bragging about what you give. Now, let me ask you a question. How about when people give to churches and they have their name put up on the board, the church puts the name up on the bulletin board and say, this is how much so-and-so gave last week. That is the most offensive thing. I even saw a church in China, near Shantou, China, I remember, drove a good ways to get to this church. It had been established there a long time ago by a Protestant missionary. And right there on the board was the names of the people who had given money that week. This is offensive to me. I can't believe that Christians would engage in such practice. Another another modern analogy is rich donors giving their money to colleges and get their names put up over the doorways to the dormitories. This sort of stuff goes on all the time. It's human nature, but there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Jesus says, don't do that. Chapter Verse 3. And verse 4 of Matthew 6. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And again, how does the practice of posting givers' amounts and the dates they gave, posting that on church bulletin boards, how does that conform with this verse? Well, I'll tell you right now, it doesn't. Now, let me give you an interesting situation that happened with me one time, and I'm going to try to illustrate the point that the secrecy is talking about the public is not supposed to know about your giving. But what about the donee, the person who's been been given to? I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I'm not, I don't think he's saying that every gift should be given anonymously. And what taught me this was one time years and years ago, I had a friend, my wife and I gave uh, him and his wife, a washing machine because I think I don't know why we gave them they didn't have one and they needed one 
And we put a red bow on it, and we were so excited, and we weren't going to tell them who gave it to them. For one solid year, I believe, maybe more, I don't know, it would just keep coming up over and over again. I wonder who gave us that washing machine, and we'd have to sit there and act like hypocrites, and we'd keep our mouths shut and act uncomfortable while they tried to guess who the donor was. And finally, I couldn't stand it anymore, and I just told him, we gave you the darn washing machine, so quit guessing about who gave it to you. So... I learned from that is, no, this is not talking about anonymous giving to the donee. There's nothing wrong with it if the circumstances call for it, of course. But there's nothing wrong with letting the donee know that you're giving him the money. This is not what this verse is talking about. This is talking about get, let your giving be done in secret so that the public doesn't know, not the donee. Verse 5 in Matthew 6, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. Their reward is the public acclamation. Of course, this is Jesus is being a little ironic here. What kind of a reward is that? They're not going to get any heavenly reward for what they're doing. More people see you on a street corner, and that's why I mentioned street corner. That's where everybody can see you. They can see you up, up and down one street, then go turn right 90 degrees, and they can see you down that street too. Now, no, there's nothing wrong with praying on a street corner, but the, what was wrong was being having it done there so you could be seen by men. Now, Adam Clark's got an interesting point here that he got from the famous commentator Lightfoot. Clark says, The Jewish prayers were long, and the canonical hours obliged them to repeat these prayers wherever they happened to be. And the Pharisees, who were full of vainglory, contrived to be overtaken in the streets by the canonical hour, that they might be seen by the people and applauded for their great and conscientious piety. As they had no piety but that which was outward, they endeavored to let it be shown. So, in other words, it was time for prayer, like the Muslims have time for prayer, you know. Well, let's be out here where it's time for us Jews to pray, where everybody can see us praying. Well, that's disgusting. By the way, it's standing on the corner to be seen is wrong, not standing when you pray. There's nothing wrong with standing when you pray. In fact, standing was the ancient practice of both Jews and Christians, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Thus, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will, will reward you. This verse goes with the previous verse about praying in secret. Now again, what Jesus is saying you don't need to go outside and pray where everybody can see. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with praying outside as long as you're not doing it to be seen. That should be obvious. But what he's saying is go into your room and just you and Jesus, you and the Father, communicate. Now, this principle can be applied in lots and lots of situations. I mean, a lot of times you know, somebody said, did you pray for me? Did you pray for so-and-so? And you say, yeah, I prayed for him. And pretty soon you're bragging about how many people you prayed for. You just got to be careful with that. Verse 7. Matthew 6, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Here's an example of that in 1 Kings 18, verse 26. So they took the bull given them and prepared it, and then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. In other words, they stood around dancing all morning saying, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Repetitious babbling like pagans. The Jews must have been guilty of the same thing, else Jesus would not have warned them of this. Although I don't know of any specific practice that they did that Jesus was referring to. can think of some modern-day applications. How about Catholics' superstitious praying of the rosary? This is done so often it's made it into the culture, into the, and you can watch movies and see Catholics praying the rosary. 
Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown says about that. The very prayer which our Lord gave us as an antidote to vain repetitions, talking about the Lord's Prayer, is the most abused to this superstitious end. The number of times it is repeated counting for so, for so much more merit. In other words, the more you say the rosary, the more merit you get from God the Father. And, of course, I'm sure good Catholics don't do that, but a lot of superstitious Catholics do. Now, here's a Muslim prayer that illustrates vain babbling. O God, O God, O God, O God, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, O living, O immortal, O living, O immortal, O living, O immortal, O living, O immortal, etc. I don't know where I got that from, but that's, that prayer is the most boring thing in the world. I, I would think God would get bored if he was listening to a Muslim praying, which, of course, is not going to be happening. But if he were, he'd be bored to death with that kind of prayer. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. Great length of prayer, which will, of course, involve much sameness and idle repetition, naturally creates fatigue and carelessness in the worshiper and seems to suppose ignorance or inattention in the deity. In other words, we've got to keep shouting at God the same thing over and over again so he can hear us because we think he's deaf. Here's another quote from Adam Clark. Prayer requires more of the heart than of the tongue. The eloquence of prayer consists in the fervency of desire and the simplicity of faith, the abundance of fine thoughts, studied and vehement motions, and the order and politeness of the expressions are things which compose a mere human harangue, not in humble and Christian prayer. Prayer requires more of the heart than of the tongue. The eloquence of prayer consists in the fervency of desire and the simplicity of faith, the abundance of fine thoughts studied in vehement motions, and the order and politeness of the expressions are things which compose a mere human harangue, not an humble and Christian prayer. Okay, so there's some good uh, exhortations against vain babbling like pagans. Now, let me make one final point here. This vain babbling does not refer to speaking in tongues. How many times have you heard cessationists or ignorant people say, oh, you're just babbling away you know, like a pagan. Jesus said don't do that. That's not what speaking in tongues is. Was Paul a vain babbler? Or was he praying in the Spirit so that his spirit would be edified? Now, most reasonable people know that this doesn't refer to speaking in tongues, but I mention it because there are some unreasonable people out there, such as John MacArthur, who says that all charismatics are shams and, and, and fakes, uh, and amidst, amongst other slanderous, libelous accusations that he makes. He, who knows what he might say about this verse? Or one of his followers. Well, if you're one of his followers, do not think that that had anything to do with speaking in tongues. Otherwise, Paul would have been condemned. Matthew verse chapter 6, verse 8. Do not be like them, Jesus continues, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is again referring to praying in secret as opposed to praying on the street corner. You don't need to do that. God knows what you need. You don't need to shout at him where everybody can hear you. Now, this verse can be misused. People can say, well, God knows what I need before I ask him. Therefore, I don't need to pray at all. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. You have to take the verse in context. He's saying you don't need to shout at him ostentatiously in public. But, you know, we just finished saying you should go into your room and pray in secret. So, obviously, you're supposed to pray to Jesus. I mean, that should go without saying. But, again, some people might want to abuse that scripture. Jesus told us to pray. He said, go into your room. That's, uh, where is that, two verses previous, Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father. He says to pray, not, not to mention a thousand other verses in the Scripture about praying. All right, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Now, here we have the famous Lord's Prayer. This, then, is how you should pray, Jesus said, quote, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Now, this Lord's Prayer is not a strict form. It was not meant to be prayed word for word, either in the original or in translation. For one reason, there's two forms of the Lord's Prayer. There's one in Luke and one in Matthew, and they're different from one another. It's just a form, a general idea of how you should pray. And if the purpose of it, in context, is to avoid those vain babblings, those vain repetitions of the heathen that he has just mentioned in this chapter. There's nothing wrong with praying it exactly if you so desire, and people do this all the time. But you just have to be careful it doesn't become a dead ritual. Anytime you do something over and over and over again, pretty soon it can be very, you can, it, become, it can become very mechanical very quickly. Let me give you a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Nevertheless, since the second form of it, this is the one in Luke, varies considerably from the first, and since there's no example of its actual use or express quotation of its phraseology, no such expression occurs in the sequel of the New Testament. Anywhere in the New Testament do we have an exact word-for-word version of the Lord's Prayer. We are to guard against the superstitious use of it. Well, of course, we should do that. Uh, actually, Jesus used uh, a form of, that was uh, a prayer form that was frequent among the Jews. Every public teacher gave one of these forms to his disciples to teach him how to pray, and Jesus just adapted it a little bit, according to Gill. All right, so let's see what he says about how we should pray. First of all, he says we should say, Our Father in Heaven. Now, notice this is a corporate prayer. Our Father? How many times do we turn it into my Father who is in Heaven? So this is a corporate prayer. And what does that tell us? That means when we pray, we should find other believers and pray corporately with them, as well as privately, secretly in our room, but also corporately with other believers. Our Father in heaven, God is our heavenly Father. He takes care of us. He's close to us. The Father part is an intimate term because our Father is close to us, our provider, the head of our family. In heaven is a transcendent term. It shows that he is above all, ruling from heaven. So both are kind of there in that phrase. Both transcendence and eminence are both present in that phrase. And then Jesus says, you should say, hallowed be thy name, or hallowed be your name. What does that mean? It means sanctified by us, or may your name be sanctified by us, by the people praying. Well, what does sanctified mean? Sanctified means separated from the world and dedicated to God. And dedicated means consecrated to God. So separate from the world, dedicated, consecrated to God. That word for holy, sanctified, means to be holy. So holy and sanctified is a very easy definition. It's used over and over again. It's simple. You can look it up. You can stick it in your brain. Holy means separate from the world and dedicated to God. So, when we sanctify God's name, we, let, we set God's name apart from the world above all else. Now, when we say name, oftentimes we tend to kind of over-literalize that and, and say we're just talking about the letters that are his name that we're supposed to set apart and, and sanctify. No, it means his person because the name stands for the person. So, hallowed be thy name means we hallow you, God, your person. We put you above the world. We dedicate ourselves to you, and we separate ourselves from the world, and we dedicate ourselves to you. Let me give you a quote. No, I'm going to skip that. Let me ask you a question. How does the current Christian expression, oh, my God, answer to this? I hear Christians say this all the time, and I think, does somebody never teach you the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be the name. Or how about the one of the Ten Commandments that says, that says uh, do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain? I'll just leave that for you to contemplate. It is ironic that this prayer is called the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer never, the Lord never used it himself, at least not that we know of. The petitions, the preface, the conclusion are manifestly of Jewish origin, John Gill says, but Jesus took uh, the most proper and pertinent petitions then in use and altered some of them for the better and came up with the Lord's Prayer. But again, it's just a sample. It's a form for how we should pray, a template. 
All right, that's the first part of the temple. We should set apart God's God as holy and, and know who He is when we pray into Him. He's a holy God. He's not some long-bearded grandfather sitting on a sofa up in heaven ready to throw popsicles to us whenever we feel like we need something. That's not who God is. Matthew 6.10, Jesus says to pray this way, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, whenever you see the word kingdom, you have to you need to think of this phrase, already but not yet. The kingdom of God is at hand, and yet kingdom will be consummated in the future, as in uh, the book of Revelation, for example, the New Jerusalem. And people will debate of how much of the kingdom is already and how much of the kingdom is not yet. If you get if you overrealize your eschatology, you have all of the kingdom right here. This, for example, people like hyperpreterists who think the resurrection of the dead has already come, and the new heavens and the new earth are already here. Manifested sons of God, that charismatic that charismatic heresy uh, that has popped up. Uh, they had the same thing. We can walk through walls because the kingdom of God is here now. Some types of dominion theology. Now I'm a post-millennialist, so I'm you know I believe in optimistic eschatology, but the idea that the church is going to be running the world, a theocratic type of post-millennialism, uh, that kind of dominion theology, extreme dominion theology, is over-realizes eschatology, and it and it is too optimistic about the kingdom, and it says that most of the kingdom is already here. But then you got the other type of kingdom, which is the one that's far off, like a premillennial kingdom, way off into the future. And uh, especially dispensational premillennialism that says all hell's going to break loose. A lot of our millennial eschatologies like this, all wars and rumors of wars. If you, if you give it to be an orthodox preterist, so you get rid of all that pessimism. And I'm an orthodox preterist, so I'm not pessimistic like that. So I think that that is underrealized eschatology. I mean, I don't want to sit on this earth and just experience defeat after defeat after defeat. I didn't sign up for that when I became a Christian. Surely. If Jesus managed to break into history and rise from the dead and we're identified with him and his resurrection, surely there should be some notice of that on the earth. Surely there should, should be there should be some effect of that on this planet in this life that we have to live in this veil of tears. So anyway, we're supposed to pray, your kingdom come. That means more of the kingdom now and all of the kingdom in the future. It's a progressive thing. We need to pray that progress will be continued about God's will being done on earth, just as it is already being done in heaven, on earth. That's right now. That's not talking about way off into the future. That's right now on earth. Let's go to Matthew six eleven, continuing with the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Now here, unfortunately, there's a lot of textual problems, and it's hard to translate this, even though it seems so simple. First of all, the NIV Study Bible makes a comment. This is necessities, not luxuries. It does not say, give us today our daily vacation house in Hawaii. Or, give us today our corporate jet. Give us today our Mercedes-Benz or our 16,000 square foot house like Mr. Furtick of Elevation Church just built. It doesn't say that. It says our daily bread. What is bread? Bread is what you need to eat to stay alive. It's not fancy. It's not steak. It's not chablis. It's just bread. So give us this day our daily necessities. So I think we can all agree on that. Now, there's a textual variant here. As I said, there's textual problems here. John Gill translates that textual variant as this. Give us today our bread for tomorrow. Our bread for tomorrow. Now, let's just assume that that variant is right and see what it might lead to. Well, it could mean it means give us all the necessities we need for the rest of our life. Give us our bread for tomorrow. Well, the problem with that is, and in fact, Luke expresses it that way. Luke chapter 11, verse 3, Luke says, give us each day our daily bread. In other words, for the rest of our life, give us every day our daily bread. 
Uh, that's the NIV translation of Luke 11.3. The King James translation of Luke 11.3 says, Give us day by day our daily bread. In other words, over and over, day by day, give us our daily bread. Now, there's another possibility. It could mean give us our bread for tomorrow, literally not tomorrow for the rest of our life, but tomorrow for the next 24-hour period. Now, some people seem to think that that might contradict Matthew 6.34, which says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't see the contradiction. Just because you pray for something to be given to you for the rest of your life doesn't mean you're worrying about it and that you're thinking thought about it. You're just praying for it. I mean, I pray that I die in my sleep. That's off in the future, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong to pray for that because it doesn't happen in this 24-hour period. So I don't see that contradiction, so I'm going to forget that. Let's get back to what the options for this variant give us our bread for tomorrow, assuming that that's what the text truly was. Give us this today, our bread for tomorrow. Option one, all the necessities we need for the rest of our life. Option two, all the necessities we need for the next 24-hour period. Or option three, all the necessities we need for this 24-hour period. The reason that it's hard to know exactly what it means is the word daily, the the compound word in Greek that's that's translated daily here, is used nowhere else, either in classical or sacred Greek, either in classical or Koine Greek. And so people, the critics, divide on exactly what it means. And Jameson Fawcett and I'll go into a long technical discussion of that, and I'm not going to go into it because it doesn't matter to me. So, but anyway, those are three options. Give us bread for all the rest of our life. Give us bread for the next next 24-hour period. Give us bread for this 24-hour period. Now, here's another fourth option. Give us the bread that we're going to eat in the Lord's Supper in the consummated kingdom. Now, this is an interesting theological argument. It can be found in Dr. Eric Svensson's book on the Lord's Supper, his master's thesis at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And it's an interesting idea. I don't know if it's true or not. I don't think anybody really knows exactly what's true because of the difficulties in the text. But at any rate, whatever it means, uh, I've got no problem with praying for daily necessities. And I think that's the simplest thing to do. Don't worry about whether it's for the rest of your life or for the next 24-hour period or this 24-hour period. Even if it's referring to the Lord's Supper at the end of time, it doesn't matter. Pray for your daily necessities. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's very necessary. Verse 12 of Matthew 6. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Our debtors. A debt is, of course, a moral debt. Not, we're not talking about financial debts here. And notice that we owe debts not only to God, but to our fellow man. So when we pray to God to forgive us our debts, we're not only asking us to forgive our offenses against him, but also against our fellow human beings. We owe something to God. We owe satisfaction to the law and justice of God. And we got to pay. Luke chapter 11 verse 4 says, Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. So the idea of sin, debt, is closely related to sins. In fact, in many modern versions of the Lord's Prayer, in fact most, people when they say, Forgive us our trespasses, which is sins, we trespass against God's commandments. Now, uh... Notice the word forgiven. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. Let's look at Mark 11, verse 25 through 26. Jesus says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anyone against anyone, forgive him, so that our Father who is in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, the problem with that is, it sounds like our forgiveness, God's forgiveness of us is conditioned upon our forgiving our debtors. Now, that's not stated right here in Matthew 6.12, but, the, but a, the passage in Mark says that. Two ways to solve that problem. One is you can say that 
Jesus that God that Jesus is saying, look, if you want to restore your fellowship with God, which is going to be broken when you sin, you need to forgive. It's going to be broken when you don't forgive your fellow Christians or your fellow human beings. Forgive other people, and then God will restore his fellowship with you. In other words, forgiveness is not taken in the sense of your legal justification when you become born again and get converted. That's one option. The second option is, it says that when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. In other words, you need to get saved so that you can forgive you wouldn't be in a, in a you won't have the ability to forgive him unless you are already saved so forgive him because you're already saved so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins gotquestions.org gives these two options and the way they say it is this anyone who refuses to forgive others is demonstrating that he has not truly received received Christ's forgiveness himself so if you're going to forgive somebody if you want God to forgive you, you better get Jesus to forgive you first so that you can forgive that other person. Matthew verse six, chapter 6, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, or from evil. Alternate translation there is the NIV notes. Some later transcripts add, deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I think that's the King James Version uses that. And that's when you hear that, the Lord's Prayer is sung, you will hear that phrase in there. But NIV doesn't have that. Now, the problem with this is that temptation has two meanings. Temptation can mean an allurement into sin, a seduction into sin, meaning number one. Or meaning number two can mean a trial, a test. Well, let's try to narrow down what that means lead us not into a trial or a test well the problem with that is, is god puts us into trying situations all the time he wants to show you that he's your provider he will then take the money away from you where you have no visible means of support so that you have to say god help me i don't have any money help me uh he, he may take you into spiritual battles so that he can teach you about victory in christ well that's a trial being in battles a trial so i don't think that's what it means i don't think it can possibly mean that but then there's another problem let's take the other meaning of temptation does it mean seduction into moral evil and lead us not into and, and do not seduce us into evil do not seduce us into evil why would you pray that why would god even think about doing that what's the point of praying for something that god would not ever do praying to, for deliverance from something that God would never do. He's never going to lead you into temptation. Well, that's a thorny dilemma. Let me give you what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says to answer that problem. He says that what Jesus means is, is to don't let us yield to, to be drawn in, to be sucked into temptation. In other words, it's how you translate or how you interpret that word, lead us not. Lead you not means to lead you away from the situations which would tempt us to evil. In other words, get me out of here. Like Joseph leaving leaving. Potiphar's wife, who was trying to seduce him sexually, and Joseph says, I'm out of here. And, and so man, and Jesus is saying here, lead us to situations where we won't be tempted. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us into a situation where we won't be tempted. That's the way I put it. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, it means don't let us yield to, don't let us be drawn into, don't let us be sucked into temptation. And I think that answers it pretty good. Matthew 26, verse 41, Jameson Fawcett Brown quotes that to, to back this idea up jesus says watch and pray that you enter not into temptation that's when he told his disciples i think that was in the garden of gethsemane don't enter into temptation it's the same thing as lead us not in temptation it just seems like it's a little bit misleading the english here lead us not into temptation it means keep us away from temptation interpret it that way there's no problem and it means temptation to moral evil not trial matthew 6 verse 14 and 15 i've already given a preliminary 
answer to the problem raised by this verse by looking at the Mark parallel, but we'll bring it up again here. Matthew 6, verses 14 through 15. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And again, that sounds like works righteousness. Oh, I've got to forgive somebody before I can go to heaven. That's not what it means. The two options I gave, one option was, is that if you forgive men by becoming born again and being able to forgive men, then your Heavenly Father will also forgive you after you've become born again. And I think that's the best option. Or it could mean if you forgive men when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will restore His fellowship with you and translate forgive you. That's a legitimate option. I don't think that's what it is, but that's what a lot of people do. Uh, Let's look at some scriptures about forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. There's the parallel. Jesus forgives us, we forgive each other. Colossians, if Jesus can forgive us, by golly, you can forgive somebody else. Colossians 3.13, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against one another, against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So there's that parallel there in two places in Paul, in Ephesians and Colossians. Jesus forgave, therefore we should forgive. But I'm going to stop it right here. We'll take up Matthew 6, verse 16, and go to the end of the chapter in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. 